Our first Tales from the Couch, a little NBA preview and some other nuggets picked up. We're going to talk Golden State Warriors with Anthony Slater. The history of hip-hop, all right? An oral history, the rise of hip-hop, the come-up. Jonathan Abrams, his new book is out today. We'll talk with the author and worst take and a new Kyle fact during Life Advice. It's the Ryan Rosillo podcast presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs and FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like three-minute markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming, so please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 and older, 18 plus in D.C., and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. La Quinta by Wyndham has everything you need for your next business trip. From free high-speed Wi-Fi to fitness centers to free bright side breakfast with fresh waffles, eggs, and more, book direct at LQ.com. Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. Tales from the Couch, the 2022-23 edition. We're going to get started. Okay, my NBA Finals picks. I'm going Warriors over the Celtics rematch. Calling it right now. Over five years, we had three teams in the NBA Finals. We've had more shakeup. I'm going to get to how many teams are eligible for this. Or at least my exercise is usually, if this team won the NBA Finals, would you be really surprised? Maybe a little surprised or really surprised. And that's what we'll do a little bit later. Uh, am I doing it just because both teams won last night, opening night? Uh, no, I'm not. If you want to tell me Milwaukee's absolutely coming out of the East, I'd probably agree with you. And it always makes me think back to like, what if KD hit that shot? How different would things be? Would Bud have been fired? People thought he was going to get fired during the playoffs. What if KD hit that shot? How different would it be for KD in Brooklyn? Would they have won that year? I don't know about that. Maybe. They just didn't have enough help around them. Does that mean maybe the Bucs win last year because they're more motivated by coming up short again? Would there have been more questions if they didn't win last year? It's like, hey, this Giannis guy puts up a lot of stats, but is he really a winner? Which are sort of the rules when you consider the best player or one of the five best players. Like as soon as you don't win after like year six or seven, we're like, what's wrong with this guy? And sometimes the answer is that something is wrong with him. Um, but there's nothing wrong with Giannis. So little aside there. Do I think it's a repeat? Maybe we'll get to it. The East has three teams, maybe four. Philly's going to be good. Despite the loss last night, we'll get to them in a second here. I still think Philly's going to be really good. You got Philly, you got Boston, you got Milwaukee. I'll allow Brooklyn. But I'd like to at least see them play together for, I don't know, a few games. Is that okay? In the West, do we have five? Golden State, Denver. People are really, really on the Clippers. I'm not saying they're not going to be good. I'm just surprised. I wouldn't pick them because it's a little bit like Brooklyn with the uncertainty. Memphis, would you allow Phoenix? I think we should allow it. I know nobody believes it. But if at the end of this whole thing, the redemptive arc, Phoenix wins. They figured it out. What happened last? You know, like, is it possible? I think it is possible. So we could say eight teams, which is a long list for this league. Again, we had Golden State, Cleveland back and forth there for a while with a little sampling of Toronto in 2019. So I don't know. Is it nine teams? New Orleans feels a little too soon. 
Dallas. Luca would have to do something special, but you know my rule. I don't love the heliocentric teams around one guy, despite whoever that guy is. So yeah, that's a lot for this league. So Boston's going to be good. Uh, it reminds me a little of Toronto and what dawned on me watching Toronto in 2019. Although, let's face it, Golden State's healthy. They don't have that championship, but it was still a very good team for the sense that they had a lot of shot creators, shot decision makers. I should say ball decision makers. Sometimes we like to sound cool and make these terms more complicated than they are. Scoring the basketball is one of the dumbest fucking things anyone has ever invented to say in any observation of sports. So, Toronto had Kawhi, they had Siakam, they had Lowry, Van Vliet. Green, Norm, Norman Powell, uh, Abaka, not terrible if he had to take a dribble or two. I'm not saying he would ISO anybody. And Gasol, who wasn't a dribbler, but was a terrific passer. That's a lot of guys that are comfortable with the basketball in their hands. Uh, some have suggested that's actually what Oklahoma City is trying to do, not to copy the Toronto model from 2019, but put together a roster of length and players that can handle and make decisions. So, People that are okay making decisions, a lot of length. We'll see. Checks a lot of boxes so far. But when I look at what Boston can throw at you, if they want to go small, I don't know if they'll do the hyper small Jalen Brown, Tatum, Brogdon, Smart, Derek White thing. But that's five guys that are good with the basketball. Um, I'm worried, obviously, and Horford would be six. Grant is such a good shooter, you're not going to have him dribble and break anybody down. But you see what I'm saying? Like They can throw a lot of different people that can attack you, dribble, drive, shoot, dribble, drive, pass. You know That's, that's impressive. And if you can pull it off and putting your team together that way, uh, it's a huge, huge plus because it usually means, you know, hey, can I get out of this if I have to? The other problem, though, we have for Boston, no Rob Williams last night. Even though they lost, or excuse me, well, I guess I should put it that way, even though Philly lost to Boston last night, I still think I would like Philly against Boston without Rob Williams long-term. Uh, I think the Celtics rebounding, even though they're plus five last night, will be a problem for them uh, while they wait on Williams' return. Noah Vonley in a game, like, he looks in shape. I'll give him that. I thought he fought hard defensively against Embiid, but he don't really have much of a chance. And Philly's deep. Like, Philly's pretty deep as well. I mean, Thibel was, was kind of an afterthought in the rotation for last night. And Maxi got it going late. And Harden looks a lot better. He does look a lot better, despite me despising the falling forward into the defender to get the free throws. Although the Blake foul is just a stupid foul on Blake. So I feel good about Philly. I feel good about Boston. The only thing with Philly, there was I know they had 29 points in the fourth quarter. There were touches of getting a little stagnant there offensively, even if they got buckets from it, because they did. They scored, again, 29 points. There were some stretches where the game was still in the balance. It's like, are you, all right, are you guys kind of going back to your default things that you're more comfortable with. But it is good to see a healthy Harden if you're a Sixers fan, although I am fucking pumped that we're almost on two years of hamstring updates. All right, what else? Let's talk Warriors on their side of things here for a second. Uh, They're going to be better. I've been saying it all summer. I don't think this is that big of a take at all. Uh, A couple of the young guys are going to be better. Poole's going to be better. Clay's going to be better. And they did a really good job keeping as much of this as they could again. I'm like, hey, sorry, they didn't pay Gary Payton $9 million a year. Um, but they kept Looney. And now their biggest weakness, if they had a weakness last season, because they did, I mean, you can still win a title and have weaknesses with depth along the front line. If Wiseman's playing all the season, that's a huge plus. He doesn't have to be an all-star. You can already see what the role is. High screens, rim run. Get there. He's a ton to deal with. I'd still say it's even a little choppy offensively for him, but it was the first game back. Uh, I've not been told, okay, look out, this guy's going to take the world over. 
but I've been hearing really good things about him. I know the start of his career is not what you want. 39 games his rookie year looked lost. But again, he's allowed, you know, he's in a situation where he's actually not allowed to be lost. If he were playing for Minnesota and he were healthy, well, I shouldn't say Minnesota anymore because they have a good front line. If he were playing for Sacramento, bad Sacramento, not new and improved Sacramento this season because we've been on that over here. But if Wiseman were on just a bad team or he's allowed to just do whatever the fuck he wants, he'd score 15 points, not even trying. All right. But it was defense and it was the offensive role. They're going to be a better basketball team. Remember, the Warriors last season had a lot of injuries and gaps of not having people. They were 27 and 6 and 41 and 13 at some point. They finished 53 and 29, which is, I think, if they had finished with 60 wins and won a title, that people would be buying into the idea that they were like clearly, they might actually just be clearly the team in the West and we should stop fucking pretending that it's five teams. That might be true as well. Not sure yet. Need more data. Let's talk a little LA. I was texting with a front office guy last night, and he goes, who's the Lakers' third best player? I went, wow. Hmm. I was like, is it, do I say Kendrick Nunn? That seems wrong. Seems like you shouldn't say that. Do I say Patrick Beverly? Like, I don't really want to say that either. We knew this was going to be a struggle. When you actually see it and you go, okay, let's look at the minute breakdowns here. Pat Beverly. He only played 25 minutes because he had five fouls. Lonnie Walker, which I've never quite understood, started. That's going to be tough. Is the backcourt actually Beverly and Walker? Uh, Matt Ryan, who I think they signed so Austin Reeves would have somebody to hang out with. Wendy and Gabriel. Uh, you know, this is there's some blowout minutes in here too. The point is this, and I like Toscano Anderson. I like Reeves. They're, they're number three to ten. Stack that up against some other just decent teams, not even the best teams, that gets a little thin. If there's a positive from all of this, it's that 80 looked like Anthony Davis again. LeBron's going to get his numbers. I think you're going to see him slow down. I saw it last year a little bit. People told me I was nuts. He's supposed to slow down, by the way. You know, We're 20 years into this whole thing, but he's still so good and so smart. He's still going to get his numbers, but I think you're going to see him have, have long stretches where he I mean, this guy can coast and get 30. It's fucking crazy. Let's talk a little Westbrook. Um, Barkley said trade him at halftime. He said he wasn't happy. He had no joy. Well, you don't just trade him because Westbrook's bummed out. I mean, Westbrook obviously is going to pick up the option. Speaking of options, Westbrook looked a lot happier in the video where he cranked it out that day in his car singing along when he picked up his $47 million player option, which is the right thing to do. Would never blame him. But when you kind of are like, fuck everybody, here's the video of me picking this up, you can you can't then also get mad when people give you shit. Uh, Reggie Miller not going to give him shit, though. We're going to save that one for worse take a little bit. Because as I've said throughout, and it's happened numerous times, people default to, hey, Westbrook still got you 18, 7, and 7. 18, 7, and 7. And then Westbrook, after the game, said that Darvin Ham bringing him off the bench in the last preseason game absolutely led to his hamstring strain. I thought this was all Vogel's fault. Don't worry, folks. We're going to be here all season. Speaking of disrespect, we are keeping track of it this season. The disrespect all-stars. Who is the most disrespected? Tyler Hero out of the gates, first-teamer. Last year, he said he was in the same conversation with Luca, Trey, and Ja. He was asked to follow up before the season started. He doubled down and said, quote, don't feel any different. My numbers back it up with those guys. P. 
PER career for those other players. Luca 24, Trey 22, Ja 19, Tyler Hero 14.3. The numbers do not back it up. We will be keeping track of disrespect. Another thing we noticed last season, speaking of the disrespect play, is the woe was me, how come nobody wants to vote me for all of these awards bullshit campaigning that we saw at the end of last season. It's never been worse. Never been worse than it was last year. Everybody was the most depressed guy ever trying to figure out how he's going to win. Jonathan Kaminga, in a preview that I saw, was talking about maybe winning Defensive Player of the Year, but he's like, you know, I'm not going to win Defensive Player of the Year. I was like, dude, the first rule of Defensive Player of the Year Club is that you have to say that you're Defensive Player of the Year. Uh, Bam still can't figure out how he didn't fucking win it despite only playing 56 games. I love Bam. I would have voted for him. He played 56 games. The other guys played more. Little contract update. Who needs a Cam Reddish isn't getting an extension tweet? I loved him. I couldn't get enough of him. I'm like, please update me on the Cam Reddish extension situation. I forgot what fucking team he was on for like a week. He did not get an extension. DeAndre Hunter did. Four years, 90 million, maybe 95 with some unlikely bonuses based on whatever you've read to this point. I have no idea if DeAndre Hunter is a great pickup or this is awful. He's already missed 82 games. I know what he's supposed to be. I know he had some decent games there against the Heat, but uh, that contract, and I'm going to default because I feel like Atlanta's made a lot more, uh, they've made, they, they have. Atlanta has been better than they've been bad at it. You know, everybody makes mistakes. They've been a good front office here for multiple years. I actually really kind of like what they were putting together there. I'm not even knocking the Hunter contract. It just, when the number came out, it was one of those deals where you're like, I have no idea where you land on this. And this is an absolute leap of faith for a guy that's been pretty inconsistent. I know what he's supposed to be if he's pretty good. Uh, but you know what? That's far more important than Cam Reddish's numbers. So there you go. Warriors over Celts. I said it. Repeat. Doing it again. Embiid MVP. Okay. Done. Paolo Rookie of the Year. Coach of the Year. Joe Mazzulla. That's your preview. This episode is supported by State Farm. So look, a little rock hit your dude's windshield on the highway. And at first you're like, what is that? I'm like, oh, it's just a little mark. Nope. Now by the end of the ride, it's a big crack. And it had been a while. So I check out the State Farm app. I go, hey, this is what happened. And the funny thing is, is I was like, do I want to go app first or do I call old school guy? Probably should call. I was like, let's check out the app. Not only did it take a minute to get done, they set up the glass replacement. They told me the estimate ahead of time, said, do you want to go ahead with it? And I was like, now I understand it's all in front of me, all done. I don't even have to talk to anybody. That's how efficient the insurance game has become. But really, the only words you need to remember are, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can Talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need. Have coverage options to protect the things you value most. File a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, just like I did. And even reach a real person when you need to talk to somebody. The app was so good, I didn't even need to do that. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. Anthony Slater covers the Warriors for The Athletic. He has joined us numerous times before, and I picked him to repeat earlier today in the podcast. And we're going to ask him what he thinks. What's up, man? Good to see you. Good to see you too. Um, I feel like the Bucks have become the popular pick. Do you feel like I'm? Are you bucking the trend there? Wow. Well, pun. Um, I have no problem with anybody picking the Bucks. It might be the right answer. 
It might be the right answer. I actually don't like picking a rematch. Sometimes I try to be a little different, but I also picked A&M to be in the playoff to try to be a little different, and that's not working out for me. So when I look at the Celtics' possibilities, as I touched on the open, I really like the way they're going to be attack teams offensively, and we know the defensive track records there. No Rob Williams. Feel a little bit different about it. But my point all summer has been off of Golden State is this team by default is just better than who they were last year. And I actually think the record for last season is a little misleading that people kind of forget. I brought up two different times where it felt like this team was clearly on a roll. So look, you're around them every single day. How do you feel about them going into the year? Yeah, I mean, the the record to me last year is a lot misleading where they their starting lineup played zero regular season minutes together. <laughs> um, and then they were the best five-man lineup in the playoffs. You know, they were plus 26 together in the finals. And, you know, even talking to the young guys when they got there to camp, they, all the young guys had been around for a month, like scrimmaging and, you know, Wiseman's trying to get right and DiVincenzo's in the building and they're feeling really good together. And then like day one practice, you know, the, the veterans show up and just crush them. And they're like, you know, what, like, what is this? We've been feeling so good. And it's just like talking to DiVincenzo about it. You know, he was a little frustrated practice day one, practice day two, but then they go and play the Wizards in the first preseason game. And he's like, Oh yeah, I forgot we're playing like the probably the best five man unit in the NBA right now, like in our building. Uh, and I think that matters. Like this, they found something in the playoffs. Wiggins, you know, emerged into who I think he might be this year, which is like an aggressive rebounder. And Looney has like taken and he took a step in the playoffs. And and pool the pool you saw last night is the pool you saw in the playoffs. That's not necessarily the pool you saw in December of last year. So. Like the main, their main core six guys are better than they were in the regular season. And that's not even getting to the extended depth, which, as you saw last night, goes, they go 11 deep, truly 11 deep. You've talked about this, and it's a really good piece because it doesn't happen very often. And you can't even plan for it, but that is the having the two different timelines where you have a core of guys with multiple championships that expect to win another championship while you're developing this other younger core. You could argue the Spurs have done it a few different times, but but not like, I don't know that, it, I'd have to go back and look at all the rosters. I remember there was a pacer stretch where I was like, are they kind of doing something like this? But nobody does it. Nobody goes, hey, in five years, we would like to have a championship core, but then also to be developing guys, you know, just out of high school to go along with this. So this is very unique. What's the most, like important observation that you can share with us about how they're trying to map this all out. I think just kind of like the challenge of convincing these young guys, like you need to play bit roles that are like specified and they're winning, right? You know, you need to be like on a, a winning ninth man while also behind the scenes, like, you know, Jonathan Kaminga to me, I think he has the hardest of the jobs of the young guys. Like you want to be Paul George, it's theoretical when you're 25, you could be like, you know, that level of player. I mean, we'll see. I'm not sure what how likely an outcome that is, but I think we all believe like his dream of being an all-star wing in the mid-prime of his career is realistic. Um, but for now, you need to be like a, kind of a slasher who when you get the ball, you move it, which is not his instinct at all. Um, and they're trying to teach him both things at once. And if he does the other thing, he kind of ticks off the veterans. But at the same time, they spend a punch a bunch of time behind the scenes, like trying to teach him to do those things. And it's just like it's it's difficult. And then he looks across the league, like Jalen Green, who he was teammates with for the ignite, and he you know pins himself up against right. And probably you know if we're being honest, probably thinks he's better than. 
uh, is going to, how many shots per game is he going to take for Houston this year happily? And, you know, I think Kaminga's like, you know, that that could be kind of fun, but I also kind of have to do this job, which last night he plays 11 minutes. I think he's ready for a bigger role, but like, what, where is it on this team? Yeah, you've mentioned that when he starts to freelance a little bit, which is what he's been allowed to do at every level prior to this. When I watched the stuff before Ignite, I was like, okay, he's really big, do whatever he wants, but what what's the competition here? And then I was really pleasantly surprised by him. So I think it was, kind of, whoa, what can this guy be? But then it's funny because I think the things that he does that are impressive are the things that don't fit where it's move the ball, reset, get yourself open, reset again. You know, this, the beauty of this warrior system, I can't believe more people don't try to do it. Not everybody has their shooters or commitment or coaching, but just to constantly reposition yourself, play to the end of the shot clock as an offense. It's the epitome of everything that I'd want from a basketball team. And when Kaminga deviates and it's a fucking sick play that's really impressive to us, it's still outside of what they're trying to think. It's a tough ask because I'm telling you right now, a kid who's 20, he can say he's about championships. He's about points and getting his contract. And then I'll worry about that when he's 27. That's the way the league works. Yeah. I remember there was a funny play last year. It was uh, it was Clay's first game, not his first actual game back, but his first game where he was like, uh-oh, Clay's on today, like 4-4 four four in the first quarter. And like, you know what happens in Warriors games when Clay's on. Like every offensive possession is like, angled to get him the ball as he's scattering around. But Kaminga was in the game and they kicked it to Kaminga at the wing. Clay's probably hit four threes on the last like six possessions and Clay's wide open, like, you know, ready for it right in front of the Warriors benches. They're like waiting to erupt and Kaminga's like, I'm lining this one up and like took the three and they're like, like, no, you you must understand that Clay Thompson gets the ball on this team in that situation. Uh, and it's something I remember them referencing last year, but there there are a lot of moments like that. But at the same time, what they've come to love about him is like, they think he could be like a monster individual defender and and, and like they've envisioned switching lineups in the playoffs where, you know, they're switching everything against like Memphis, for example. And he's a huge part of that. He's switching on the jaw and he can guard like a Jaron Jackson theoretically. Um, But, you know, he has to commit to playing that winning type of basketball. And, but if he does, they think like, man, this guy could be a huge piece. And it is that balance of like him, him having to understand that, but I mean, also kind of trying to you you also do want to grow him to what he's going to be, right? I mean, because three years from now, you want to hand some of the keys off to him. The guy I'm more interested in is Wiseman. I know what I had heard, you know, the rumblings about what to expect. I would say it's convincingly always been very positive with some reservation about who he ultimately becomes. What can you share with us about, you know, look, it was a nice little he, he had nice minutes last night. Yeah. Um, give me your your big picture, full scope of Wiseman. Yeah, I mean, look, they brought in um, Nikola Jokic's coach uh, last before last season, and it was James Wiseman, very much related. I mean, that's why they hired him. Uh, Dejan Milojevic is his name from Serbia, coach Jokic growing up, and he was waiting all last season to like be able to teach him really. And you know, like obviously they did some individual stuff behind the scenes. You can. You know, talk to him all year, but he just could not get on the court. And I remember going to Stockton because why people forget Wiseman played three G League games last year before his knee swelled up again and they shut him down. I remember talking to Dehan before that, and he was like, "Yeah, like I want him to go out here tonight and make mistakes because then we can go back and discuss and you know get him, you know, essentially in a rhythm." And then the knee swelled up again, and he couldn't. Um, but meanwhile, you saw what Dehan did with 
Looney. I mean, weirdly, like he, he's grown Looney's game in a lot of ways. Looney's credited him with like this rebounding explosion. Um, and finally, Wiseman gets the full summer league and then plays all summer. I, he looked raw. He looked like he did as a rookie in summer league, which, you know, had me, I would say, concerned like, you know, he's just not going to be ready to be a backup center. Um, but then he played all summer. They said he was in every single day, you know, uh, for like six weeks playing pickup and to me, I, when camp started, I was talking to somebody within the team and they were like, you know, don't expect, you, you know, I, they don't want to like blow it up like he's about to explode this season. But basically it was like, you know, don't expect Mo Bamba out there either. Like this guy's yeah. still got, got a lot of stuff there. Um, and he's shown it. I, I think a preseason, he had like 20 and 10 in the first preseason game. Uh, he's seeing everything better. He's being more patient as a rookie. Uh, if he got it in the mid post, like he was like, Oh my God, I got the ball. I'm go- I gotta go to the rim. I got, I gotta take a shot, whatever this year preseason. And last night, it's more like he can get it in the mid post. He can watch people move around him. Sometimes they'll make a pass, but everything is just being done more patiently. I thought he screened better last night. They were working him and pulling the pick and roll. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, I, I think he's in a good spot for what his role is going to be. Why did Draymond punch pool? I mean, in the moment, it was from what I understand and what I've always been told is it really was just like a whatever like argument in a scrimmage game. As far as like the the in inciting in that moment was nothing grander than just a normal pickup game argument. Under the surface, we all know is like the what I've what I wrote about, which is the transitioning of from one era to the other and the idea that it seems to be kind of clear to a lot of a lot involved that Draymond is the most vulnerable in this situation to to lose his grip and control of his standing within the Warriors, right? And um, I'm I, I'm not trying to say that was like directly behind the punch, but that is what has been bubbling up all summer. I mean, we wrote about it in the summer this contract situation that was coming up and where their priorities clearly were going, and that was to pool. And now we've seen also to Andrew Wiggins, um, and that. Just kind of sits over the top of everything, and um, he is losing some of his grip on on really his 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 standing within the Warriors. Okay, I want to get to his future, but before we do that, I want to just remind you know, just talking out loud here. Like when I look at the Celtics situation, it's like, man, how are they going to handle this Ime Udoka thing? We don't give athletes enough credit, and maybe it's just the way they're wired. I think a lot of times they don't give a shit. I really don't. Hey, we know Joe Mazzulli. He's been around. Okay, cool. Like, he may fuck up or all right, he's not here. We're a really good team. We're going to roll. And the same, it's not the same act, but the same could be applied to the Warriors, especially the Warriors, too, because they've been doing this longer. They've been more successful. They're like, okay, Draymond punch a teammate. It's bullshit. Shouldn't have done it. All right, let's go out there and win 60 games. Try to defend the title. Like, I just think athletes process and move on from things that other people would have a harder time processing. They just do it better. And maybe it's because they're selfish. You know, their mind is structured in a way where it is all about them and surviving how hard it is even getting to the NBA so that that, that leads into them getting over shit a little bit quicker. So I don't want to just assume, hey, the Warriors are fine. Everything's going to be good. But I don't know that this lingers with a professional sports team the way it would with a Like, Poole may never like Draymond again the rest of his life. I, you know, so help me understand all of those elements, whether it's Poole, Draymond in the future, but then also knowing who this team is and the structure, a very great structure for a basketball team, going, you know what, like, 
we're not even going to be thinking about this in a couple of weeks. Yeah, I think what what's been important uh, in the aftermath is the fact that like this isn't like a divided situation where there's like half the locker room is like, well, Draymond's kind of justified here, and the other half's like, well, you know, pool. Everyone back pool. The veterans, you know, Andre Iguodala, Steph Curry, Kevon Looney, Steve Kerr, Bob Myers, all the way up to ownership who just paid Jordan Poole four for one twenty three. Like everyone in this situation has been like, Jordan Poole, it, you know, was wronged. Draymond Green needs to, you know, they've they've used the word earn earn their trust back, which Draymond, you know, outwardly didn't like that word being used, but it's a situation where, in a lot of ways, Draymond was isolated and and. And it's it's still remain feeling like a team because everyone seems kind of unified with him on the other side of the situation. Um, and then you then wonder like you know how's Draymond going to play? But the way they've structured the the extensions and the contracts in the future, like Draymond has to be really good this season. If Draymond wants the big contract that's out in front of him, he must be healthy and be impactful. And his way of being impactful is like very helpful to a team. You know, it can't be one of those situations where. You know, players upset with with the the team, but hey, I must still go out and get mine, score twenty three, show I can do it. And even if I'm not helping us win, like for Draymond to get another big contract, he has to be an awesome team player on the court. So that's just kind of the situation. He'll be tw- uh, thirty three this season. He's at twenty five point eight. He's got the player option for twenty seven point five. I'd imagine they'd love for him to just pick up the player option, and then they'll figure it out. And then take himself out to market. I don't know. And again, correct me, tell me that because I want you to tell me what you think, obviously. But, you know, all right, take up, you know, it's a good player option for you. If I'm another team, I'm not signing Draymond Green for this kind of money without the other guys. Uh, but then again, I'm also a little worried about the Warriors, where they're at uh, as, as a as a team, their personality without him, I think all teams kind of need that tough guy. And then sometimes I think about Draymond where I'm like, you know, who's right or who's wrong here? Granted, he was wrong in punching pool. Is it the end of the world? No. If they didn't want to suspend him, then I'm fine with it. Like, I didn't give a shit. And then I'll think about other things where it's like, there was no remorse over 2016. It was fucking stupid. Uh, he he runs so hot sometimes, it feels like it, it can get annoying uh, you know, something as dumb as I think Michigan State was playing Akron in football this year and he was standing at the end zone and he was getting in it with the Akron players. And I thought, why the fuck would he like, why would you be getting in it with these guys? But then I'm like, wait, maybe the Akron guys just started talking shit to him and then he's just not going to back down because that's not who he is. So maybe it's easy. Maybe it's complicated with Draymond and the personality standpoint of it. Uh, I saw you shake your head a little bit, though, when I said he's not going to be as worth he's not going to be worth this kind of money to other teams. So maybe we start there. Well, when you said like you you think the Warriors w- want him to pick up the player option in a sense of like want to come back for twenty seven million, or you want him to, or you think they would prefer him to decline it and go test the market? No, I'm saying if the Warriors like it's a good number, pick up that option and we'll 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 revisit this then without having them to go to the long term commitment, and then he can take himself to market. Because if I'm another GM, I'm not signing him without the Splash Brothers. Like it's just. You know, he's he deserves a lot of credit, but he's almost unwilling to ever admit like I landed in the perfect situation. He's just not gonna be that thirty four years old, like I'm not running plays for Draymond Green on another team. Yeah. No, I mean that that I agree with. But um I the problem is Joe Lacob is not 
like if he picks up his player option, which is his right at this point, like they're there, they hit like 500 million in the tax bill. And Joe, like it was like basically been pretty transparent. Like he's not going over 400. So the reality is like some, there's a big contract. If you include Draymond's within the conversation that will not be on the roster next season is my pretty strong belief. Um, so is that a stray that's not that's not like set in stone, and you know they've messaged publicly and even behind the scenes like let the season play out, and like you know different decisions can be made. And Bob has even made the point that um, you know if you go back to the beginning of last season and said, hey, you're going to pay Jordan Poole four for one twenty three, and, and you're going to extend Andrew <laughs> Wiggins four for one oh nine, he would have been like, no, I'm not. Yeah. But what happened last season dictated those choices. Um, so I think they're they want to let this season play out. Like, what if Draymond just you know, gets back in the team's good graces, rips off an unbelievable regular season, is everywhere in the playoffs. He's great against Jokic and Davis and wins them another title. You know, Andrew Wiggins has an extremely tradable contract at this point. Jordan Poole, that I'd say that's a tradable contract. Um, the most likely scenario in my mind, particularly considering the last couple of weeks, is yes, that it's Draymond's who's who's gone next season. But I wouldn't say that's like set in stone we will see um but i just don't think it, it they've said it's not feasible to pay what they're currently committed to pay next season if draymond picks up the option so um i don't think they would depending on what happens if he declined it i don't think they'd hate that and he may decline it too um because they'll say okay well whatever even though 27 is going to be the best average annual salary there'll be another team that has cap space that bring me in as the veteran from a basketball standpoint, I just don't know that you know he's he's never going to be in a better position in his life, which is fair to say about a lot of guys that would have played with the rest of the Warriors throughout this entire run. But you know, maybe he goes, look, I'd rather hit free agency now. We already know there's something there's there's a hundred million dollar deal out there for me somewhere else. So I'm just going to go ahead and take that, even though the average would be down. That might be the way it would play out. But I I would have thought that the Warriors would rather him just be in a situation where he's picking it up. So it's just that one-year commitment, and then they figure out the rest of it, as opposed to just losing the asset. Because I don't care what your tax, like I, no one really wants to lose the asset for nothing. Because you're talking about the salary slot, which yeah, you know historically they've slot. been obsessed with holding the salary slot. It's why yes, they D'Angelo Russell, Russell, right? Yeah, which became yeah. Wiggins. But they've hit this threshold, and I think part of that is because like they were not expecting Jordan Poole to become, you know, twenty-eight million dollars per year when he's making three, the three point nine this season, like that leap that he's about to make in salary next season has made them go like, we got to get off one of these salaries, essentially. Because unless Joe Lacob changes his mind and decides like, you know, he's basically tried to tried to hold this line at about 360, 380 million when we're considering salary and tax. It's going to be 500 something million next year if they keep everybody. So he said no to that, where I, you're generally correct. You don't want to lose the asset for nothing, but like, they can't even trade Draymond and bring back money because then you have the same problem. So I just think they need to get off. Like they'll get off of one of the three. I think is the best way that you put it. Yeah. Is that we could be in June of next year going, oh, actually this will be the guy that they're going to move out. And you're right with the, with the restrictions of being this far over all the stuff. So yeah, I, I guess maybe my, the best way to do is I feel like there's a lot of like immediacy in that. Well, whatever, whatever. Draymond's gone. I'm like I don't I don't know I don't he might be the worst investment of the three which is fair there's a way the south he's the guy that doesn't have the extension okay so the odds may be I'm just not sure that it's that definitive and that's kind of where I'm at right now in October 
Yeah, and you we would we potentially will feel differently if they have a playoff run where it's like all playoffs. You're like, well, pool can't stay on the floor in this series, right? You know, defensively, and you know, and and Draymond just has an awesome playoffs, which of course he's of the belief he will. Um, you know, the Wiseman's also making twelve point one million next season. Um, there are other salaries you can maybe try to you know because if you shave twelve point one million off, and we're talking about times eight, that's that's shaving like ninety million off a. Of, off a tax bill. There are other ways to potentially maneuver around, but Draymond at this point appears to be the cleanest way. Yeah, it is. Uh, no, no disagreement on that one whatsoever. What else? What else do we need to talk about with the Warriors? Did you pick them to win the whole thing? I. It's funny. I said this in the beginning. I picked Bucks over them. Oh, um, you did pick the Bucks. I, I didn't know that that was your pick. Did you say it was your pick? No, I didn't just, say it was okay. my pick, uh, but I, I said it and then I like have followed coverage over the last few days. I'm like, geez, I thought I was like, you know, going to get, like, I thought I was going against the grain a little bit, but I'm like, now I'm in the popular uh, bandwagon. Uh, I think they'll win the West. I'm, I'm just not of the belief the Clippers will like be fully healthy in there. And like Kawhi is just going to look like Toronto Raptors, Kawhi against the Warriors. Um, and they're, you know, they're, they're, they're really loaded. Uh, I, what do you think of the young guys? I mean, Particularly, you know, I'm talking Moody coming to Wiseman. I've always been kind of a little indifferent on Moody, even coming out, you know, but his his role is the easiest one to figure out what it is, where you just go, hey, you know, make sure you move the ball and you're going to get a ton of open shots. Like, you don't have to put it because I felt like at Arkansas, he was a little, I don't like to say soft, but I thought he was a little like, little it just wasn't turned up enough for me at times, even though he's, you know, he's got the size and the length and all that kind of stuff. Uh, Wiseman, maybe you say he's got the easiest role because you just go, you're going to come in and back up Looney, but that's not why you take this guy as high as you take him. You take him hoping he's the starter and he's playing 30 minutes and he's playing really good defense. The offensive part of it doesn't really matter for Wiseman because he's going to get, we already saw it last night. Like the free, there's free points out there all night. It reminds me of Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, but like it's their money and they want to give it to you. Um, they want like he's going to score, but when you watched him in the very limited time we saw him in three games in Memphis, there was another level of what his offense could be. And I think we saw in his rookie year a little bit too, where you're like, oh, this this guy wants to shoot like elbow jumpers. He wants to put it on the ground and and give you a jab step and then shoot again. And that's why you kind of got so excited about Wiseman. I've never written Wiseman off. I've I've not understood it. He's the the floor for him is still impressive because there just aren't many people in the world that are that big that can move the way he moves. The Kaminga part, as you said at the top, it's a lot harder, but we probably felt better about Kaminga compared to the other guys at times last season. Uh, you know, certainly more than Moody and Wiseman, you know, because Wiseman didn't even playing. So that's my that's my young guy take, and Poole is is afraid of no one, and I can't imagine him taking a step back whatsoever because that guy doesn't give a shit, and I love it. Yeah, and you know, I think you saw it last night. I think DiVincenzo uh, was a good signing, and Jermichael Green looked good. He had like five offensive rebounds. Jermichael's a nice, yeah. Jermichael Green should be somebody like on everybody's to do list to fill out a rotation. I, I completely agree on Jermichael. Yeah, so you know, part of the story of the Warriors' surprising title last season was the way they hit on their bargains, which was uh, you know, obviously Gary Port, Gary Payton the second, Otto Porter, uh, Bielita, even some, and I. It's very, very early, but I, I think they kind of did it again with, with DiVincenzo and Jamichael. Uh, Green to really kind of round out, probably, I would say, maybe the deepest rotation in, in the league. I'm not, the Clippers are supposed to have one. I want to see them. I want to see it like in actuality. 
I guess I should say Jordan Poole's not afraid of anyone on the court as we finish. Is Poole... Yeah. He took the get, punch. Pretty he sure you did. Know. No, he got right up. But I don't know. I mean, I don't know how we'd handicap that one. Are they going to not be cool for a long time? We'll see. Um, he Jordan has like pretty, you know, I in my opinion, been pretty transparently icy in his two press conferences, two press availabilities he's done and uh, has shown no signal, you know, in front of or behind the scenes that he's like ready to be like, oh, brothers are brothers. It's fine. It's more just like got a job to do. We're here to do a job, um, which is like kind of sometimes his tact anyways when talking to us. But he's not, you know, openly, you know, putting his arm around Draymond right now to show that 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 everything's fine. You guys, you guys get a, a tracker for pool to green passes. Green to pool. We saw a nice one last there night. There was a really nice one last night. And like the you felt like an extra like buzz from the crowd. Like, ah, see, so you guys are fine, right? And it was like, nah, that's just it was open. It was a nice pass. It's a great read. It's a great read. Anthony Slater, I, read him. Go ahead. I, I would say the la the one question I have though, Draymond last year held pool accountable defensively all the time, yelled at him. I mean, I remember doing a story where he was just, you know, and the and the coaches were happy about it. Like, yeah, get on him. Like Mike Brown was loving it. Like, this is how we need to coach Poole up. Can he do that this year? That's my question. Like, can he yell at Jordan Poole after a defensive mistake? We didn't see one last night. I want to see that. That's a great point. Here's the thing. Like, that would be the most anti-Draymond thing ever if he just decides, you know what, like, I'm not going to get on his case about stuff because Poole will screw up defensively. And yeah, that's that's a good one. I'll be looking for it, man. Uh, again, Anthony Slater, the Athletic. Read him all season long. Uh, really good stuff. Even if you're just not a Warriors fan. So thanks, man. Yep. Thanks for having me. This episode is brought to you by Hulu Plus Live TV. Looking for a better way to watch live TV? Stream your favorite sports and shows on over 95 live channels with Hulu Plus Live TV. Get access to Hulu's entire streaming library, Disney Plus and ESPN Plus, all in one plan. Start your free trial of Hulu Plus live TV today. Live TV plan required. Restrictions apply. Access content from each service separately. Learn more at Hulu.com. The Come Up is out now. An oral history of the rise of hip-hop. Jonathan Abrams, somebody who I am a huge fan of, uh, not only as a, a Grantland alum, uh, but also wrote the book about the wire. Uh, thanks for doing this, man. So uh, let's start with this. This reads like a family tree of hip hop where the tentacles just kind of spread geographically across the country, um, in different areas, obviously in different timelines. So if we go back to whatever, five decades, cool Herc, uh, the DJ parties, DJs battling B boys dancing, and all of this is happening in the seventies. Something's happening but it feels like it it definitely changes once the message in Grandmaster Flash, The Furious Five, like whatever it was where it's kind of unknown what it is, then becomes something perhaps more identifiable along that timeline. Yeah. Well, first of all, Ryan, I know our orbits have kind of crisscrossed over the years and I haven't gotten the chance to chop it up with you yet. So I really appreciate this opportunity. But yeah, the message represented this giant shift for hip hop where if you looked at hip hop coming up in those really early years, it was this kind of party music genre. It was the the rapper's delight, the hip hop, the hippity hip hop. And they're not really saying that much. And Edwin Fletcher, who went by the name Duke Booty, he works for Sugar Hill Gang's, uh, their band. 
And he's telling the guys, hey, if I ever get on this, you guys better watch out because y'all ain't saying nothing. And he gets a chance to get on there and he writes his song, The Message, where it's this social critique about what he sees, the broken glass everywhere. And you really see a fundamental change in hip hop after there where I don't think people realize that hip hop could be this social vessel before the message comes out in 1982. Yeah, that that feels like I, I went back and listened to it again and it still it works. And granted, we've heard that beat over and over and over again. Um, and I, you know, there's so many different pioneers in hip hop and there's so many different moments where you're like, okay, was that when things would change? And I guess maybe I will just jump in because after Sugar Hill and you have this, this run DMC element that the way you compare it, it's, it's almost like rock and roll. Like they decided to do something different sonically than maybe what was happening before, but it, it definitely wasn't along the lines of like the social commentary of what Grandmaster Flash is doing. Yeah. So Run DMC, they're really important because they're the group who really crosses over this new genre over to the mainstream, to the to the white audience. But you see from the message, there's almost a direct lineage between two branches of hip hop. First, you see Public Enemy coming out in the late 1980s. And then you see Schooly D come out with PSK, What Does It Mean? in Philadelphia, which is really the birth of gangster rap. And Schooly D is somebody who I talked to for this book. And he's like, yes, I was directly influenced by the message that showed me that I could talk about stuff that I see in records and not necessarily be shut down. Okay, let's let's go with the public enemy part, and then I'll bring it back around to the West Coast and Schoolie D and everything, because Schoolie D gets a lot of love in this from a lot of different people in the industry. But public enemy, tell us about Chuck D. Tell us about Flavor Griff. Tell us about the education. Um, these guys were just thinking differently, man, and it was really revealing reading about their origins in this book. Yeah. So what they're doing is they're just reinventing the wheel sonically, lyrically. They have the the heft and the weight of the Bomb Squad, this revolutionary production team behind them, and they're putting together music, just shards of different uh, different records from their past and putting it all together to create this big sonic mosaic. So that's one component. Then you have the component of somebody like Chuck D, who is coming out of Adelphi College, where he's in this group with a couple other members of Public Enemy, and they're seeing what's going on socially. And they're a group from Long Island coming out in hip hop when hip hop has basically been in New York during that time, in New York City. So the genre starts traveling out to the suburbs and Public Enemy, they take it on their shoulders to present this social commentary because they feel like they're almost in a different place than somebody in New York City. They have the means of more expression and, and more commodities to be able to get their message out than somebody who may be, you know, in that decay and desolation where hip hop was born in the Bronx. Yeah, because Chuck D was what? He was a graphic designer and it was just a bunch of people kind of going to school at the same time where it's just fun. It's it's fun to read about younger people kind of discovering that they're going to do something special, but they're still not sure what it's going to be yet. Yeah. And he was he was in his like mid to mid to late twenties at that time. And he thought he had basically aged out of being a hip hop artist. They had to really, really convince him to grab a microphone. Cause somebody heard his voice, right? When he was, wasn't he like doing just 
PA stuff or PA announcements and somebody yeah, heard he his was, voice. Yeah, he was at a basketball game and they were just like, that. that's the voice. That's the voice of a generation right there. And then they had to really, really convince him. He just wanted to be on radio. He wanted to maybe be an MC on the likes of Frankie Crocker, who's a really big MC and fundamental in the whole hip hop rise in New York City. And they saw him as somebody to aspire to because there were no hip hop stars really at that time other than Run DMC, but there weren't many. No, you had Run DMC, you had LL Cool J, which every time you're reminded about LL Cool J, you're like, this guy is still going. I mean, I saw him a few years ago. He was the entertainment for an ESPYs party, and I would never have like put LL at the top of my list or any of my list, although you have a ton of respect for him. And to watch him perform, I was like, holy shit, does this guy bring it? It was, it was unbelievable. People forget about LL. He was one of the first just solo straight superstars when he was coming out of Def Jam. And he was only like 17 when his first album came out. But I think it was Curtis Blow. And then it was him as far as the first, first solo artist to, to really get going and make their names in hip hop. So at that point, you know, the, the sampling has, has taken off. I think if you look at a lot of the Run DMC stuff, you'd be like, okay, we've got our drum machine. We've got our sample. You know, it, it felt... Again, this is why the public enemy takes a nation of millions means so much is because sonically you're all of a sudden you're like, holy shit. And you could tell in the book that so many other guys that were kind of like, where is this going? Where's this going? They're like, what do those guys just do? Rick Rubin, legendary producer. Like you're you're mentioning like whether it's an alarm, whether it's a sound effect, but it just it brought you to attention. That album brought you to attention, especially for somebody like me who grew up, you know, getting it as soon as it came out, because you would hear about it not having any idea what the messages were because it just wasn't the the world that I was exposed to. But just from a musical sense, you're like, what the fuck is this? And it it just shook you, you know, it shook you, whether it's Night of the Living Bass Heads, whether it's, you know, I don't know, louder than a bomb, although I kind of like the Rebel without better, a pause. But yeah, every one of those songs, you're like, what is this? And that felt like a real turning point because then everybody decided I don't have to just grab a sample and make some drum beat. Like I have to step it up because that, I think that challenged everybody else from a production standpoint. All right, enough of this shit. Like you guys need to start treating this musically. And I think that's what that album did. Oh, without a doubt. And they were, they were musicians first and foremost. And it was the result of all those guys putting it in where you had, you know, Chuck D. And if you got too much of him, you had the the comic foil that was Flavor Flav. And then you had these musicians who, you know, sonically, they would call it dissonance, but everything resolved somewhere to where it was just perfection. Like, <laughs> you know, people who weren't raised up on that, they would call it noise, but those guys worked their asses off to make sure that everything musically resolved somewhere. So how did that then migrate West? Because I think part of it is Schooly D, as you mentioned, uh, where he felt like, look, I'm I'm giving you poems essentially about my day to day. So I think musically, Public Enemy got people thinking about things differently. But the West Coast thing still hadn't really, you know, it still had years to catch up. Yeah. So the West Coast is bubbling and percolating. They're first heavily influenced by Africa Bombada and Planet Rock. So they're on that electro music in the early 1980s. And first, Schooly D comes out in Philadelphia. And PSK comes out in 1985. And then right off the heels of that, Ice-T hears that he likes it. He's thinking about how he can almost emulate it and he's inspired by it. So he comes out with Six in the Morning. 
and six in the morning is the time basically that LAPD use their batarounds to come in and, and force down doors in LA. So that's really West Coast first, one of their first hip hop gangster songs was six in the morning with Ice-T. Right off of that, you have this group that's starting to come together and form called NWA. And their main writer is this teenager named Ice Cube. He hears six in the morning, he hears PSK, and he comes out with Boys in the Hood for Eazy-E, which is something that's based off of them. So you see the whole gangster rap subgenre basically launching off of PSK in Philadelphia. And then what, what comes up after that? So straight out of Compton comes out, NWA is at its peak. And it's almost like there's this, there's this wrestling for where is hip hop going to head. It's this young genre, it's growing in influence. And is it going to be this gangster rap that's really getting popular in the West Coast? Or is it going to be this social commentary, grabbing your attention, public enemy brand of hip hop? So they almost come face to face in like 1989. How does Ice Cube factor into doing something really nobody even thought about doing at the time, essentially going, all right, after Nation of Millions and then after what I've done, I'm leaving NWA, but I want to work with the people that put together It Takes a Nation of Millions. Yeah. So Ice Cube, it's something that I talked to him about at length. He had great, great respect for Chuck D, for Public Enemy, for everything they do. So NWA basically implodes after Straight Outta Compton. And Ice Cube decides to go to New York and he's going to make his solo debut album. There's a lot of pressure on him. He just broke up with his group. He's wondering if he can still be the same type, type of Ice Cube without Dre's beats. You know, Dre is already by then known for his beats. He decides to link up with Public Enemy, with the Bomb Squad for America's Most Wanted. And just that CD came together real quickly. It's another classic. The social commentary is cutting. The beats are amazing. And what's, you know, how that album holds up is at that point in time, the East Coast and the West Coast, they weren't really collaborating like that. It was almost like two different nations coming together where Africa Islam had done some stuff with Ice-T, but what Ice Cube did with Public Enemy and with the Bomb Squad was really groundbreaking. What did you gain? We've all seen the movie. We've all heard the stories. What did you gain from different elements at NWA on, on how that went so bad so fast? It just seemed like it was a lot of miscommunication. Talking to Arabian Prince, talking to Ice Cube, it seemed like Jerry Heller at that time, he was set up to be Easy es representative when they thought that he was going to look out for all of them. And so there was, you know, money being misplaced. They weren't getting the money that they thought they were supposed to be getting. And, you know, I think <laughs> when groups come together, it's only a matter of question of when they break up, right? Because <laughs> they all break up. It, it, the only question is when, like, are you going to be able to get one album? Are you going to be able to get two <laughs> albums? How long is it going to be? As this is happening, you know, you still have New York City, which, feels like, hey, Bronx invented this stuff, you know, whether it's KRS, Colonel Minded, you know, the early stuff going on with Boogie Down production. Then there's this, this slight shift and it is, you know, you knew it if you were into hip hop, but like when Black Sheep came out with their first thing, which is kind of an offspring of Native Tongues, which I want to get back to De La Soul is kind of the start of that. But like when, when Black Sheep just shit all over gangster rap, 
pretend they have that dream sequence and they're just screaming and you're like, wait, what? Because the first time you hear that song, you're like, wait, are they trying to do this for real? And then they shake each other and the guy says, oh, I had a dream that I was hard. It, it was kind of the beginning of like, obviously it became a lot worse later on, but the beginning of like New York just still not respecting anything that came to the West Coast. And I think that's very normal. Even if they liked the music, it just felt like as the originators of the genre, they had to just out of hand dismiss anything coming from the West Coast, even though they were selling millions of records. Yeah, somebody, somebody in the book described New York City as Wakanda, where you have all these like separate factions infighting, but once they're once their rivals from elsewhere come out and try to challenge them, they all band together the different boroughs. And I thought that was a really accurate description to where, you know, the chronic and when that came out in the early 90s and then Snoop Doggy Dog with Doggy Style, that was really the first time when it was just, okay, this is too good. This is overwhelming hip hop everywhere where the West Coast started to get some of that respect. But I don't even think NWA got all that much respect from, from New York when they originally came out. No. And I'll never forget the dog pound video that just all over New York, stepping all over the buildings. buildings. And that was, that was years later. But I mean, I still was in college and you were just like, oh, because there was this other element of hip hop that you had to be like, well, who's going to say what to who? When um, we'll get to Pac and Biggie here a little bit. But I just before we go any further on that, Three Feet High and Rising is important for different reasons. The fact that it got a chance, right? The fact that you know, whether it was Prince Paul and, and Tommy Boy, but them understanding this native tongues. And again, they call it like hippie rap and everything back then because it wasn't it wasn't about some of the other things that like these guys were admitting we're not tough. We're not pretending to be tough. But three feet high and rising, again, if you want to talk about the layering of different chances that you're you're taking musically there, that De La Soul to me is like when De La Soul is dead came out, people were just pissed it wasn't three feet high and rising part two. And what a lot of us, almost all of us didn't understand, it kind of reminded me, you know, reading about Miles Davis years later and loving all of his music is that when he started doing In a Silent Way, tribute to Jack Johnson, this, the more funk diffusion and putting more and more electric stuff in, people were so mad at Miles Davis because they were like, why are, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? And what De La Soul did time after time again was do something different that we were just not ready for. And it took me a couple years on a few of those albums where I didn't understand how special it was what they were doing. And that to me is like the absolute best example of like, if you're a genius at what you're doing, it just means the rest of us aren't ready for that kind of stuff. And I think whether that turns into Tribe and some of the other stuff, and I ended up probably liking Tribe more down the road, but that's a, that's a time and a place where that was a risk. And I'm obviously glad it happened because without it, I don't know. I don't know if those, those, those groups get those chances as talented as they were because it at the time probably didn't fit the mold of what was really popular. Yeah. Tribe Called Quest, De La Soul, Jungle Brothers. That was all a really special snapshot in hip hop history where. And really Jungle Brothers first, too, you know, like to point that out with how much credit those guys deserve. Yeah. Where they're experimenting and developing different set of things, showing a whole new different side of hip hop. That, that hip hop in the, late 80s, early 90s, that whole period is just so special during that golden age because you're really not at hip-hop's potential yet and you still don't know what hip-hop can be. And they're experimenting and they're developing and they're giving homage to what they grew up on, but still taking it in new, different, exciting directions to where 
you know, it's obviously a crime that an album like Three Feet High and Rising, like you can't get that on iTunes because they were so eclectic and wide ranging with their sampling that they haven't been able to get it clear. Yeah, so that's the deal. They had that thing, what was it, years ago? Didn't they just announce that it was all for free digitally and you had like this window to download it? Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I did not take advantage of that window. Um, <laughs> I still have the CDs around. Okay, let's talk about Tupac. The first impressions that people had of him in the beginning of his career, uh, the book is loaded with them. What were some of your favorite stories about people meeting Pac for the first time? Yeah, I think it was just, his talent, his vision, it was almost like they knew that he was a guy who was headed for, for superstardom. And, you know, I don't think it's, I grew up in Southern California, I'm 38 years old. So for me, Pac is my goat, right? Like, I'll never forget where I was when I, when I heard that he was shot and heard that he, he died a few days later. Um, you know, he was somebody who showed me the full range of, of, how to be black, you know, somebody who could be a poet, somebody who could be go scorch earth and show that full dynamism in a human being. There's a really good point that's brought up in the book about Tupac in that there's, it's a theory. It doesn't mean it's accurate. And I think it's even shot down in the book itself by somebody else, but that when he plays Bishop in the movie juice, which is an incredible movie that, that's a very defining delineation between like pre-Bishop and post-Bishop Tupac. What did you think about, share more on that theory and, and what you thought of it. Yeah, well, the people who I spoke to in the book who were with Tupac in those moments, kind of before and after that movie. So first of all, Bishop is this kind of homicidal maniac in the movie. And the people who were with Tupac saw people treat him differently after that movie came out. They saw people almost treating him more like Bishop than Tupac. And that was almost this persona that he carried forward after that movie came out where he felt he had to almost live up to the legend of who this character was. Yeah, because then people were saying, no, 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 he didn't change. People around him changed so much that then he kind of stepped into that. Yeah, he responded to that and then kind of became a different person. So. I don't think there was much pushback and people felt like he was a completely different guy. Uh, but it, he'd also gone through some real experiences there too, that you would think between the fame and then being incarcerated that he was going to, and then being shot when he was in New York prior, you know, which is before the actual murder in Vegas, it'd be hard to not be a little different <laughs> after going through all that. Yeah, I imagine. So one of the, one of the main quotes that sticks out to me in the book is Greg Mack, who was this legendary radio programmer at K-Day who built up a lot of the West Coast acts. He was like, I remember seeing Tupac when he first came up and somebody introduced him to me. He was this sharp guy asking all these questions. And then I saw him maybe a couple of weeks before he was killed. And he just had this different look in his eye, like he wanted to kill me. And I had no idea where this look came from. And that moment stuck with Greg Mack a generation later. And Greg Mack deserves a ton of credit for getting the hip-hop thing going on the West Coast, uh, who put together these parties. There's a lot of cool stuff, uh, stuff that I'd never known anything about, not from here, hadn't read about it. Uh, all right, on the Biggie side of things, I'm going to ask you this question kind of again later on, but I think Biggie is going to be the answer. There, There's a certain like awareness that it felt like other people had 
the first time that they worked with him where they were like, okay, this is something special. Um, and it sounds like his first studio session <laughs> uh, proved that pretty quickly. So share that story with us. Yeah, Easy Mo B was one of his first producers and he gets Biggie into the studio. And Easy Mo B is a guy, he likes to have a plan. He likes to have this itinerary. He likes to clock in, clock out. Biggie gets in there. He's eating burgers. He's bullshitting. Easy Mo B is starting to sweat. This guy is wasting his studio time. He's trying to get on him to go, 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 go. Finally, Biggie is done eating all these hamburgers, messing around with girls, gets up. One take. <laughs> he's out. <laughs> it's perfect. Easy Mo B is like, all right, man, I'm never going to question you again. Just order all the burgers you want. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I know you have Illmatic as one of your top five albums of all time. Uh, I would as well. Um, but it's it's interesting how it almost feels like, you know, I don't know, maybe 15, 14 years later, the message into Illmatic that there's so many parallels. But this this was a little different. You know, there was, it was, it was different because it was like Nas had more tools, right? He had had all of these people prior to him to kind of pick and choose from all the different influences. So it's, it's considered, I don't know if you would agree or not, and I think so in the book, but it's that he's a pioneer in a modern era as compared to, you know, the guys that were kind of just putting the tracks down in the first place. Yeah. For me, with Nas and Illmatic, it's the elevation of this art form where he's building upon what, Brock Kim and KRS-One and other lyricists have done before him. And it's the first time where I think hip-hop can almost be compared to something like Shakespearean. Like, is, is somebody sitting on their, their corner in Queens documenting what they're seeing? So there's the lyrics, which are pristine and on point. It's, it's a tight 10-track album. Beyond that, it's the first time you have an album where there's just like a super team of producers all working together. So you get Pete Rock doing one track, you get Q-Tip doing another track, you get DJ Premier doing another one where nobody had ever really thought or convened of that before. It's like you have one producer who does the whole album all the way through where Nas was like, no, I'm going to get all these superstars to do one track for me. And it's going to be this tight 10 track thing and you can play it all the way through and there's no skips, nothing at all. It's a perfect album. It's a perfect album. And that's, I mean, look, as much as I love Public Enemy, there's a few skips there every now and then. So, uh, and my, my favorite, my favorite Tupac CD is All Eyes on Me. And it's this bloated double CD where <laughs> <laughs> you kind of wish there was some editing going on. People made fun of me for liking Are You Still Down as much as I did. So I was like, <laughs> I don't know. I was like, I think there's some great tracks in there. All right. Give me, is there someone, you know, she talked. How many people did you interview for this book? It's more than three hundred. Was there one rapper? Was there one producer? Was there one figure in the history of this where people kind of kept coming back and like being you know, like, you know, you know, how like basketball players would go, you know, who could go was this guy? I always feel like Rod Strickland gets gets a lot of that from former players. Uh, is there somebody in hip hop that kind of falls into that category? Maybe it's the obvious choice, or maybe it isn't. Yeah, I think there's a few. Somebody like Rock Kim, uh, I think there's almost a before and after in hip hop with him, where people talk about him and his introduction of his his flow and 
his poetry that he used. There were a lot of people talking about his influence on on them. Somebody like Ice-T, how he took hip hop in a different direction. And, you know, he was obviously somebody inspired by Schooly D. But, you know, one of my favorite moments of the book is Killer Mike talking about the impact that Ice-T had on him. And producer-wise, uh, there's Marley Mall, Pete Rock. A, a lot of those guys are big influences on the generation of producers who came after them. Yeah, Rock Kim, you know, you just, you have to. There's a few excerpts in the book where you're interviewing people and they're like, look, it's rock him. And then we'll, we'll figure out the rest. Of the list. <laughs> yeah. and, and it's honestly kind of hard to argue. It may be a personal preference where you don't have him in your top five, but I, you know, I think any list without him in your top five is a mistake. And then the Pete rock stuff's hilarious. Cause I, I talked to you last night, <laughs> like Shaq went to go hang out with Will Smith goes to hang out with this dude at his house. And he's not even there. Like he doesn't, <laughs> Yeah, so yes. Je- Jeff Sledge, he did A&R at Jive Records, and he was he had Shaq as a client. Shaq is Rookie of the Year. He's going to do his first album. They go to Pete's house in Mount Vernon. Shaq, this big-ass dude, is standing right behind him. Pete's dad opens the door, and he's kind of like, what the? <laughs> and then he's just like, Pete's not here. So Jeff Sledge, he gets reamed out all the way back. So next time he comes back with Will Smith, Will Smith is excited to do this album. It's in the middle of like peak Will Smith too, right? Yeah, yeah. he's fresh off of Fresh Fresh Prince of Bel-Air is, is the hottest thing on TV. They go to Pete's house. Pete again isn't there. They wait a while. All these people are starting to, like word starts to tr- trickle out that Will Smith is in town. All these people start to build up around Pete's house. You know, there's people outside, people knocking on the door. Pete's still not there. So there's almost like a mob scene going on at his house. Finally, Pete gets there and he's just like, oh, sorry, man, I had to get a haircut. <laughs> and then they finally get the get the session started. But Jeff said that they weren't too productive that day because there was just such a scene at his house. There was some Super Bowl party and he was with somebody I knew and they came up and they he said, hey, and I, you know, I, and I, I told you the story the other night. I like bowed. I didn't really know what to do. You know, it was Pete Rock. I just sort of did this kind of weird. I've never done that ever before. I've never done it since. I don't know why I did it. I'm not proud of it, but I did it. So last story. Can you <laughs> tell us about Dre and one of his guys after they finished the chronic? Because I yeah. really like if you want to talk about like impact, the chronic is very high on the list. And I remember working at the CD place that I worked at for years, which, you know, turned me on to not hip hop, but a lot of the jazz stuff, which then you started realizing like, oh, wait, that's what this is. That's what this guy's doing. You know, James Brown, on and on and on. But when the chronic came out, like the people that you would see coming in to buy that CD, it was like a completely different category of people that were like, okay, I'm in. Share the story because I was dying laughing because it was so typical of, of the way fame works. But go ahead. Yeah. So the story that Chris, Chris the Glove Taylor, who was a producer on the Chronic, gave me was that by the time and he was they, called the Glove real quick. He was called the Glove because he used to wear a DJing glove back when he was just a DJ. I want to say like he got that nickname because he had these like big gardening gloves that he used to use to to move stuff. That's but, what I think it was. Yeah, he was moving in stuff, but I forget if it was. Man, now I don't want to dog the guy because he'd be like, I wasn't wearing a fucking glove while I DJed. <laughs> But yeah, that's what they called him because guys saw him wearing gloves. So then I don't, I figure, I forget in the book if he kept him. Sorry, I interrupted. Go ahead. No, no, you're fine. So the story was that by the time they finished the chronic, Crystal Glove Taylor said that they hadn't smoked 
<laughs> that him and Dr. Dre had never smoked weed. So had never order, smoked weed after they finished the chronic. So in order for them to make it official, they they went and found some. And I think I want to say they found some off of one of Snoop Doggy Dog's uh, uh, friends or something. And they got some, they, they lit up and they just looked at the sky in the backyard. <laughs> just happy that they made this amazing CD and now they can make it official. Yeah, they needed to make it official. All right. What was what was the first rap song? What was the first experience for you that started all this? Like, what was the first thing you listened to? You're like, I'll never forget, you know, fill in the blank. It's kind of like that whole criminal minded sample that they do. When I first heard criminal minded on De La Soul and Stakes is High. Yeah. I mean, I grew up in Southern California, so I, I have like vague memories of, of N.W.A. And I caught a little bit of the chronic and doggy style. But Tupac is always going to be that guy who. When I first heard him, it, it settled in me and I knew that it was something that would never leave me because it was just, like I said earlier, that full range of humanity. And whether it was Dear Mama, To Live and Die in L.A., me and my wife, we walked out on uh, California Love when we got married. Um, so there's a Tupac song for everything. Wow, that's pretty cool. I didn't know. that. Yeah, I was always a little like, um, I would always like the ones that, and I wasn't trying to do it on purpose, but like I liked Midnight Marauders better than Low End Theory, which I know for everybody is the wrong answer. Um, I liked Fife better than Q-Tip. I liked Del Del Funky Homo Sapiens, my favorite rapper ever. And people are just like, you know, you're just trying to be different. I'm like, I don't think I am. I I I can understand anyone having Rakim ahead of them. I you know, I get it. I totally get it. You know, but. There were just like, I liked the Easy E solo stuff probably as much as I liked NWA because I just thought it was, it was hilarious. You know, it was, but you're a young kid, you don't, you don't know any better. Uh, the last thing that I wanted to say, and I'm glad he got a lot of love in the book is the DOC. Because if you want to talk about, you know, things that blew my mind as a little kid, uh, no one can do it better is, is pretty close to perfect as far as a guy's flow, his writing cadence all of it how he could switch up his speeds how he could kind of rhyme into the next phrase just some of the technical stuff that he did and he doesn't get nearly enough love historically we get it he had a terrible car accident damaged his vocal cords i think prince from nwa suggests like he goes think about that he finishes no one can do it better which is an all-timer okay start to finish as an all-timer and he could never perform it live he wrote on a bunch of the first songs for straight out of compton um I really appreciate that he got as much love in this book as he deserves because he's, I know he's still around. I know he's still working. I know he's still doing stuff, but it's just, it's obviously, you know, it could have been a worse story. It's still really sad because that, that tape cassette for me, you know, back when I would throw it in and play hoops and just shoot and shoot and shoot and listen to the DOC, that was one of my all time favorites. Like it'll never be in anybody else's top five and I don't care because that's, that's what it meant to me. I mean, he's one of hip hop's greatest what ifs. You think about it's funky enough and the formula. He still had a great impact. He he wrote a lot on the chronic. He wrote a lot for Snoop Doggy Dog. But I think we'd be talking about him as a goat, right? If he had had the career that he should have had. Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt. Yeah, whirlwind pyramid grand finale. I mean, if you've never heard it and you're remotely interested in the history of it and you like the rest of that stuff, there's just so many people that like NWA, like Cube, like Eazy-E. And it's like, well, if you listen to this, you would like this too. 
Uh, and the thing was, he was from Texas, which, you know, a lot of people kind of, you know, were like, wait, what's going on? This guy's right on the straight out of the Compton stuff and dudes from Texas. Hey, I, I'm so fired up for you, man. Uh, I loved it. I loved reading this oral history. Uh, it's always a lot of fun. The oral history, the rise of hip hop, the come up with John of the Neighbors. Thanks, man. Thank you, Brian. This episode is brought to you by Arby's. You know what I hate? Hate is after lunch, there's all this time before dinner. I hate it. So I'm always like, do I do this? It's like, you should. Gain season. Throw in a little something extra. An appetizer that just starts hours before dinner. It just gets so frustrating when there aren't great options. That's where Arby's new two for $5 chicken wraps come in. Available in your choice of ranch, barbecue, and honey mustard. They're perfect for that afternoon snack attack or as an add-on to your meal. Food buddies. Arby's two for $5 chicken wraps are here for a limited time at participating locations. Visit an Arby's near you or order ahead on the Arby's app. This week's worst take, uh, the podium again, Suri, just remind us for everybody. Yep, Gilbert Arenas still one, Bart Scott still two, and Charles James still three. So we have not, I don't think we've had a change in the last two weeks. No. Um, Man, that that arenas one is tough to take. <laughs> Although the Bart Scott one gets worse as the season. I mean, granted, I know the Chiefs lost this weekend, but they lost to the best team. In and I think the Charles James one is my favorite one, <laughs> which is the Daniel Jones is is Josh Allen without an offensive line. Which right, hey, I, maybe for all maybe the, we're taking the L on that. Look at like Daniel Jones is who great. knows five and one Giants. Maybe we're yeah, maybe we're the losers here. As we know, we're all eligible for this. And here's here's what I would ask: if I told Giants fans Daniel Jones is your starter next year, week one. Your reaction is what? I know. Why not? Great. Yeah. Okay. All right. So nominations. Uh, go ahead, Kyle. Okay. Uh, I was scrambling, and like like you said, I, I crowdsourced mine, and um, some sometimes these things come and they're like five days old. Uh, by the time you get to them, uh, I was furiously uh, scrolling looking for them while you were uh, doing your open. Sorry about that. And uh, here's what I got. I'm going to make a statement here. I don't know if you're going to agree with it. Vaughn Miller is as crucial to the defense for the Bills as Josh Allen is to the offense. I don't know about that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. No, that's a good one. I don't, I don't blame you crowdsourcing it. That's here's, why don't we just jump in and tell you why that's not true? One is, well, prior to the Chiefs game, Vaughn Miller's snap count was down, like way down from where he normally was because the whole plan is to try to keep him fresh all season long. Uh, I think his first game against the Rams, he had 35 snaps. So his pressure rate is still really good. He's just prior to the Chiefs game, his snaps aren't even close to the percentage of snaps that he was playing previous years. So I think you uh, could go purely off Dudgy's reaction too. It was just a little awkward. Everyone was, he was like, uh, yeah. I don't know about that. Remember, we're on TV here, pal. So uh, I just I thought the whole thing was good. And I don't know if it'll knock anything off, but um, it I'd won't like to have a little fun. I think. Yeah, I mean, Dungey's the nicest human being ever. So, <laughs> yeah, you can Dungey, hear it in his For Dungey to go, ah, I don't know about that. <laughs> what do you got, Saruti? All right, this is from our guy, Frank Schwab, Yahoo Sports. Don't know Frank, sure he's a great guy. But, and I, this is when I texted you, Ryan, and maybe I'm wrong on this, but I don't think I am. Uh, Kyler Murray, everyone's stock is way down. Everybody's selling their stock right now. Um, and he had this tweet. And said, I wonder, quote, I wonder if any NFL team would take Kyler and his contract right now, like for free. He's, he's implying that, like, would any team in the NFL want Kyler in that con- contract? I know the contract's bad. We talked about it last week with Dilfer. Like, you asked, is it the worst contract in the NFL? It might be. 
But I still think it's an absolutely insane question to ask. I think legitimately, and Ben Solak went through this because he quote tweeted it. I, I genuinely think half of the league right now would take Kyler Murray and the contract as their quarterback. Like do you, like if you look across the landscape, he's still good. He's still really talented. And do you know, like Carson Wentz has been traded twice with a terrible contract. Okay, Kyler, I'd much rather have Kyler Murray. He's much more talented. I know Carson Wentz had that one like decent half year, but the idea that like no one wants Kyler Murray now, and I understand the contract is involved as well. I think we're just getting a little too ahead of ourselves here. Yeah, uh, I think it's two different things. I, the contract is bad because I can't believe he got what he got. Now, Correct. he would, other than the Deshaun scenario, which was very weird because he thought he was going to Atlanta the night before. We've talked about this before. It was done. And then Cleveland, because they thought he was going to Atlanta, was like, okay, well, will you take? Because it was kind of, he was calling the shots because the money, they guaranteed the full 200 plus million. Guaranteed it. Like unprecedented because the situation, it was itself unprecedented. So if you just go normal young quarterback extensions and how much money guys are getting, Kyler would have the most guaranteed money in the history of the NFL. And that part of it, you're like, you gave it to that guy? I and agree. I think he's look, I think he's talented. But that's different from the NFL, which is like a fake hard cap, first of all. Okay. And if you want a quarterback and you want to improve your talent and you haven't had a good one for like, there'd be a ton of teams that'd be like, we don't give a shit. We have to pay 30 million for some like we don't even get these guys in free agency. And we do, we give Kirk Cousins a hundred million guaranteed. You know, and that was that yeah. was years ago when he did that first Vikings thing off of the franchise tag with Washington. So I get Schwab's point, but there's it's two different things that actually don't really have that much to do with each other. I I think it's the worst contract in the league. I can't believe he got it. Good for him. Um, but other teams would take it. I agree. He's he might be like a top five most talented quarterback in the league. Yeah, he better start showing that too. But if you're going to buy, but no, Hopkins, I'm, 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 or excuse I'm, me, Murray stock, Hopkins coming back would be the time to do it. Correct. The only reason I say that though is because like even if he never figures it out, there's going to be multiple teams that are going to take a shot on that guy. We've seen it before. It happens all the time. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Okay. Uh, I already brought it up in the open from Tales of the Couch. Uh, the eighteen seven and seven boys, mm. they just cannot help themselves with Westbrook. And Reggie Miller was just on one last night about it uh i just don't know why a former player can't just point out all the stuff that i notice which is accurate or that the internet has finally figured out the internet has figured it out like do you see all the bad things that westbrook does to your team um and the former players just i don't know if it's a fraternity thing i don't know if it's Hey, it's so negative about russ i'm gonna go the other way but it's actually very national broadcasty i mean it happens all the time we all decide collectively this player can't do something. I'm not going to talk about Westbrook specifically, but there'll be that one player that can't do something. And then, you know what it is? It's the Harden defense. Harden sucks. He sucked on defense again last night. Okay. He just sucks at it. He's not going to play. I don't know that Embiid was super locked in defensively last night either. But everybody says it. We all agree because it actually is true. You know, the masses can be asses. You get it. Don't follow the mob, zag, all that stuff. But there are times when it's just something is so painfully obvious and backed by eye test and information that you're like, yeah, we, ours is not good on defense. All right, whatever. And so then the national broadcast just decides, you know, he's a little, he gets like a strip, right? Or he blocks a shot at the end of the Thunder series two years ago. He'd be like, oh, I thought he couldn't play any defense. You're like, motherfucker, this isn't about, this isn't about a deflection. This is about, the thousands of minutes and 
That's why I. That's what maybe Reggie Miller was doing with Russell Westbrook. But that's not even my nomination. Cannell is losing his fucking no. mind again this season. <laughs> All I can picture is how I think he gets really mad about the SEC thing, like really mad. But acts like he doesn't. Yeah, it's like yeah, it's like, I, I, it doesn't bother me, dude. I don't even think about it. Like you think about I'm it more of, than I do. I I've argued the real guy is way better than the Twitter guy. I'm wondering if the Twitter guy is the real guy. So there were these hypotheticals about Bama, Georgia, and Tennessee getting into the playoff, which is, by the way, what we do. We just do this, man. 15 hours a week, had a lot of shit to come up with back in the day. We talk about it. Could Bama, Georgia, Tennessee get in? Maybe. I don't know. I wouldn't want it to happen. But, (laughs) of course, because that happens, he chimes in that what if UNC, Clemson, Syracuse all get in? Uh, UNC, ACC champion. That would be beating Clemson. Oh, excuse me. Yeah, that would be beating Clemson. Now I got to pull up fucking schedules again. It would be uh, yeah. It would be right, UNC. Right. It would be UNC beating Clemson in the ACC but, title game. Uh, obviously, Clemson's the runner-up with one loss, and then Syracuse's only loss is to Clemson, right? Yeah, but I don't know why he has the records the way he he screwed up the records. Uh, let me just point this out. This is this is why he's Danny's so full of shit. <laughs> If a team beat Louisville, UConn, Purdue, Virginia, Wagner, and NC State without their NFL quarterback, he would never argue for that team. He would never argue. The strength of schedule, I think, is 119. Unless it was UCF. Except it's Syracuse, and they're in the ACC. So he he doesn't follow his own rules. All right. So are any of these... You know what I think retroactively, Perk should be, can he be renominated again for having <laughs> Beverly and Westbrook? Can we put him back in there and replace Charles James? Who are James? we taking out? Oh, Charles James. All right, I think, uh, I think because of Daniel Jones' hot start, I think that's a good call. I think we swap him out. That's a good call. I'm okay with that. Okay, we made it. We made a change right. on the podium. There you go. First take. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. La Quinta by Wyndham has everything you need for your next business trip. From free high-speed Wi-Fi to fitness centers to free bright side breakfast with fresh waffles, eggs, and more, book direct at LQ.com. Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. You want details? Bye. I drive a Ferrari, 355 Cabriolet. What's up? I have a ridiculous house in the South Fork. I have every toy you can possibly imagine. And best of all, kids, I am liquid. So, now you know what's possible. Let me tell you what's required. Life advice. Life advice is rr at gmail.com. If you want to send in a submission, we're still workshopping Judge Kyle. I think it should be more like a hot bench situation. I think we all would, you know, all would roll on it anyway. And then it's kind of need two out of three to get it done. I like that. And Kyle's final say. Yeah. Yeah. I love when I love when you talk courtroom drama. God. <laughs> I was watching it yesterday. Full of a bunch of rank them. Rank them right now. Give them. Give me all the judges in order. Judge Judy's quick, changed. Judge Judy's changed. So maybe I would say Mathis is number one. Uh, Judy's one prob- sentence scouting report. One sentence. Yeah, one sentence on each judge. Judy changed. Mathis number one. It's just super uh, magnetic, magnanimous. Um, uh, I like Both. hot bench is great. Three is better than one. Um, That's what she said. Marilyn Millian's just no nonsense. She's probably number four behind three people. Um, and that's that's kind of the ones I watch right now. Uh, Judge Ross, hold on. What am I saying? Judge Ross, kind of the young, the young buck, even though he's getting up there in age. 
How many hours of courtroom TV will you bang out in an off day? On an off day? Well, I mean, I'm kind of, I'm in and out of the living room, you know? Yeah. My, 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 I smoke on the balcony, so I, I walk back from the balcony and be like, oh, which one's this? You know? I hear you. Nothing, look, I, I've been guilty of it plenty of times. You're in a hotel room, you're getting packed up, you're changing, you're getting ready to start your day, and you're like, I got to stay for the verdict. Great people watching. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, you got to stay. And then I'll try to play that game. I always thought, I always thought like a good, a good skit for a show where the host wasn't white would be because the white guy's just not going to get away with it anymore, but they would just, it would be another show, almost like mystery science type. And then they would, the two people with the defendant and plaintiff would come in and then they would just guess who was guilty. Right. And then you would just keep like, as soon as they walked in before they said yeah. a fucking word, you would be like, boom. The reason again, <laughs> If you were ever a white guy in the one episode, you didn't pick the, you, you'd just be like, oh, that guy's mess. Yeah, so, right. Nice. So I'm just, I'm, I'm confirming that I know that it would have to be, you know, it would, it would have to be a different guy hosting the show, different person, female, whatever. I'm always shocked when they're suing for $150. I'm like, wow, this is, I mean, the, the appearance fee must be good to get you guys to get out of bed for this because you guys traveled from Tempe to, to LA for, to sue for $150 <laughs> for some ruined floor mats or something. It's like, what the fuck? They don't have a lot going on. on yeah, you guys just, you guys just called <laughs> off of work. <laughs> like you're like, I got, I'm going to be gone for three days. I got to handle this floor mat situation. <laughs> I'll be back. Right. You'd imagine there's be people that would be like, I'll pay 1500 to not be on this. That's right, so man. you won. <laughs> yeah. You know, I don't, I don't want to go on this fucking show. Are you kidding me? I remember uh, there's somewhat of a public uh, defamation lawsuit and the person filing for defamation, it was like 8500 <laughs> they went wait what so when that came out again i'm not gonna it's not super hard to figure out which one that was uh anyway moving forward here let's get to the emails uh this one's titled a girl with a mustache mm. tell Pretty you off to a bad start all right six foot 187 30 years old washed up basketball player can go by anyone but only once or twice and i'm shot nobody looks better than the first possession <laughs> of a pickup basketball game than me. It's unbelievable. They're like, shit, this guy's here to play. I'm like, no, I'm not. Like, that's it. I'm done now. Okay, I've listened to every Ryan podcast show 12 years. I know I'm a fucking loser. Doesn't feel like a compliment, man. <laughs> okay. I will try to make this quick. I have a friend that I talk about everything with. Uh, you actually read one of his emails a while back. Like, look at you guys now, your email buddies. Uh, him and I are currently single and frequently dating to find the one. He recently went on a third date with a girl he was really starting to enjoy. That third date was outside, walking in a downtown area in the sun. Uh-oh. This is where my friend noticed that this girl has a mustache. Once he saw the stash, he could not unsee it the rest of the date. Trying to push through like the warrior that he is, they ended up back at his place watching a movie and proceeded to make out, at which point he started to feel her legs and felt hair uh, on her legs. This is where he drew the line, apparently, and called it quits right in the middle of the makeout session. I guess. I don't Why'd know. You do that? led to believe. Yeah. All right. Him and I have shared several dating war stories over the years. And I have a working theory I wanted to share with the focus group here. Now we're, now we're cooking. I think that people are doing the same things or have these controllable turnoffs that they have no idea that they are doing. I think you're right. The problem is they have no idea. 
So they keep doing the same things on every day. And I would say maybe 60 percent, 70% of the time, the other person is turned off by a common characteristic. It's a vicious cycle. My friend can't unsee the mustache, but what can he do about, can he send the girl a text or be a psychopath and tell her in person that she has hair growing on her lip? Put it on this girl's radar. This is giving her a better chance at her next opportunity. This is keen to the person who tells you <laughs> when you're having something in your teeth. Mm-hmm. I think he meant to say a kin. I don't know. Uh, my friend <laughs> thinks this is crazy, but I think this kind of communication is just what the current dating climate needs. Let me know your thoughts and thanks for the long read. That wasn't that long. You should see some of these. It'd be fucking great. We'd all be more efficient. Can't do it. No. It's not going to yeah. work. You can only do it, I think, after you've been dating or together for a while exactly. or potentially married. Nailed like it. my like my wife and I, we have like a great code thing. Like if she's got like a booger or I've got like food on my face or something like there's just no there's no sensitivity. It's like, hey, clean your shit up. Would I have done that in the first like month of us? Mayo. Ab- absolutely not. <laughs> yeah. Like so it's just the timing thing, man. Like because you're, you're right. Like she probably has absolutely no idea. And that sucks. But you act that you're like the white knight coming in and being like, yep. Like I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna solve all her problems. I'm gonna make her life better. Guess who's, guess who's not gonna appreciate that? Even though it will be for her betterment. Her. How's it going? Hey, I don't want to see you again, but a heads up for your future. You have a mustache. It was great to spend some time with you. <laughs> best of luck in the future. Yeah, best of luck. Uh, the female mustache is a tricky one, though, and it makes me think this one's not super apparent. You know, if it was a sunlight thing or whatever, you know, just glistening, it hit hit it at the right angle, you know. It's been too many days since the last pass. Yeah. Yeah. But then the leg confirmation part of it. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, These are fixable things, man. I didn't choose to have hair like this. So the fixable shit, you know, it's like when somebody overweight calls me bald and I'm like, all right. Okay. Got it. So, you know, uh, I, I like this guy's idea. It's just not, there's no town. There's no town like this. What do we call it? Reality town? TV show? There's probably a bad script writ, written on this premise somewhere. Like, this guy's just going to say whatever that nobody else ever says. But like, yeah, it's called Curb Your Enthusiasm. The guy already had Seinfeld under his belt. So, I don't know. Kyle, you got anything? You ever, any anything close? Do you ever done anything like this yeah but like it's like what steve said it's like you pretty much have to be you have to be all like on the same page all right like humor wise and safety wise like feeling good around each other like i'll do it now and even sometimes i take a swing and a miss i was like i thought that was funny she's actually upset i'll be like you know like our legs touch i'm like whoa sandpaper and she's like what the fuck i was like i'm sorry it just it kind of hurt i wasn't ready for that she'll be like and she'll leave and then it'll be it you know she'll leave the room she'll come, leave she'll leave the room or something you know maybe even in a jesting way but it's sort of like all right all right that one missed that one missed i've had some hits but that was a miss um uh, and the other thing i would say is for this particular person you know some some women just like they shave t- three times a week and the shit just comes back like some people like i'm I'm not one of those people. Like I still got a patch right here. It's it's tough. It's tough to get it all to come in, but some people just can't stop. So, you know, that this person might be, you know, shaving three, four times a week and it's still, you know, can't do much. You come back with five o'clock shadow on your legs or something like, 
I think I think that that's the risk you run when you when you're like, oh well, maybe I'll say something and she'll be happy. It's like, yeah, asshole, I just shaved yesterday and I did it. I can't do it every day. Sorry. So it's like sort of like giving people golf like unsolicited golf tips or or you know like you know we've talked about weight room. It's like yeah, maybe it would help. But no, but people don't want that. So you can't really like you. You're not really going to be a white knight in all these situations. In fact, you're probably going to be a little sick to your stomach once you say something and somebody's like, "Yeah, I know, I got a fucking problem, dude." So it's like, <laughs> I, like you're not going to be what's well if you're like, hey, well, like if it's mayonnaise, a yeah, or maybe it's not mayonnaise, but I'm saying if it's like a thing that somebody could be changing about themselves that you think they could be changing, and they're like, "Hey, actually, I know, I'm dealing with it," and this, it's like, it's just. You shouldn't assume that you got the keys to fix this problem, even though, you know, maybe it would help you be more attracted to her or whatever. It's just, I would just mind your business. That's a pretty, pretty good policy on this yeah. thing. Just mind your yeah. business. And sorry, sorry that, you know, you're turned off by stuff. Yeah, you might have a shitty mole. You might have something weird going on the back of your ear. You don't even notice. You know what I mean? Now, granted, there's not a lot of guys that are like, I kind of like a little, little facial hair <laughs> on my girl. Yeah, you don't hear that a lot. Yeah. So... You know, that's, we all have deal breakers, you know, some have more tolerance, some, some don't, it'd be great. But you know, when you're not together, like imagine if we took this back to the other email where the girl sat down and the guy who was four foot seven got off his stool, what if she stayed? And then he came back she's like, so look, you're really short and I'm so not into that, but let's have a drink, you know, <laughs> although that guy, who knows, maybe he would have stayed. Yeah, but, but that's not a fixable problem. This, she, yeah, this guy is right. right. Like this is a fixable problem. You'd I'm be just doing her a favor. I'm talking about the brashness of it. And by the way, like, save us the follow-up emails on this one. Don't tell us about your wife and how you were the two that actually, like, <laughs> not, not through, but like, yeah, yeah. And then the third date, I told her she needed to cut her hair, and, and it's just we're honest with each other. Just <laughs> send it to a different show. We're not, we're not interested. We got a sperm donor one here. Might need to clear this one, <laughs> Kyle. I, I haven't read that one yet, so. Let's do revenge. We know we know pettiness on this show. Let's do it. 26, 5'11, 175. Not the biggest dude, but pretty lean and do mostly calisthenics other than occasional squats. Okay. This guy's cool. Limber. I kicked up a flip-flop in my hand the other day. I was walking down to the beach to finish Abram's book. And I I obviously made the catch, but I like took a step. I was like, oh, what the fuck is that? More calisthenics going to just keep talking about it, not doing it, but I'm giving this guy props is my point. Backstory. A few months ago, I got a job in a new city, so needed to find a place to live. I put the word out to a few people and it turned out that a friend of a friend of a friend in the area, two friends are removed. Two we all have that. <laughs> yeah. Got yeah. Was looking for a tenant. I got into contact with the dude, did a FaceTime session. It was all set to move in for three months or so while I looked for a more permanent living situation. Okay. So this guy doesn't know the guy, FaceTime. He's looking for three months until he has something else. So he's looking to upgrade. I'm just telling you any transaction I've ever heard that starts with, hey, this is what I want to do now, but I'm actually looking to do this later on. Don't do that. Don't do it in interviews. Never works out. Like, hey, we want to hire you for this job. But let me tell you about all my interest outside of this place. <laughs> Let's start there. What I really want to do is not this. So... This is what he says. Okay. Unfortunately, the guy ended up ghosting me. So I had to pivot to an Airbnb for a while. I was pissed off at the time, but he probably found a longer term deal. Part of the game. All good. Probably exactly yep, what happened. It's a good outlook. Like, yeah. Right. Yeah, good attitude. Fast forward to today. I joined a local tennis league and have been playing a lot with this really cute girl. She and I have great chemistry on and off the court. 
They've been meeting up almost every week to play or just hang out. During one of our get-togethers, though, she casually mentioned that she has a boyfriend. This is obviously a deal breaker. But after various conversations, I come to find out it's the exact same dude that goes to me before I moved here. Small world. Now, I'm not Nikola Jokic with my court reads, but I'm not Westbrook either. Topical. The lingering touch when passing tennis balls. Only asking me out for drinks when we're playing with other people. The change of topic when her boyfriend is mentioned around me. I'm pretty sure the tennis girl is interested. Normally, I would never go after a girl in a relationship, but this guy really rubbed me the wrong way. I quickly got over the initial ghost, but he texted me a month ago asking if I was still moving in. (laughs) This is three months after the date discussed. I also found out my friend who lives in a different city and never even hinted at moving that he was asking her if she still needed a place to live before he messaged me again. Whoa. I really like the friendship in tennis. and The girl also has hot friends that would probably become unavailable if I went after her. Uh, yes, unless her friends suck too. If I went after her, uh, that would close. Her friend group also doesn't really overlap with Rent Reggie. That's what he named this guy. <laughs> so I probably never have to see him. However, maybe this is the universe telling me to get revenge. It's almost too much of a coincidence to pass up. Obviously, it's better for me socially and morally to not pursue, but it's like going out for ice cream when you have fruit in the fridge. What do you guys do in this situation? Look, revenge, you want to talk petty, you want to talk revenge, I'll listen to you all fucking day. All right? I got a list. But this... This guy you got jammed up on something that wasn't it wasn't like you guys both on the living situation. He fucked it up more than you fucked it up, but you weren't committing to a long term tenant. And then for him to follow up the text message doesn't make any sense. Now get to sleep with his girlfriend. That's an aggressive step. All right. Now, if she wants to sleep with you because she wants to sleep with you and you want to sleep with her because you want to sleep with her. It's all science. I'm doing it a long time. People are going to keep doing it. All right. But if there's an extra part of you, like, let's let me ask you this question. If she had a boyfriend who wasn't a potential short-term roommate months ago, <laughs> would you want to sleep with her more or less? Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. I think I think right? he was happy to I think he was happy to find out that bit of information. Yeah, He's looking for validation here. Yeah, I would suggest at this stage, at least again, I don't know. You're 26, maybe you don't care. If that makes you want to sleep with her more. Because of that, like this not working out isn't a huge shock. You didn't you didn't even know the guy. You only wanted to be there three months. You told him you're going to be somewhere else. I don't know why he followed up. It sounds like he's not a great planner either. Okay. And it all worked out for you. But if you want to sleep with her, okay. But are you are you more into her because the housing thing didn't work out? And that's where I'd say, like, that's kind of fucked. And I think it's aggressive. Yeah, I've done this before. You don't feel good coming on the on the outside of it. So play tennis? No, the revenge bang. Oh, okay. Mm. It was it was like a year or two. It was like a year or two. I'll give the short version. A year or two removed out of high school. My friend went to jail for like eight months, nonviolent crime, of course. And uh, so when I get out, his his friend, uh, my acquaintance, was like going after his girlfriend of many years, like kind of hard. I just didn't like it. So I just kind of went after his girlfriend, sealed the deal. He found out those people like are divorced now and have kids. But it's just like I I didn't really want to be in the middle of this whole thing. And I put myself in there on purpose. So like, while while like you got like a, a couple minutes of, yeah, stuck it to that guy. You know, there's there's fallout after this. And it's like 
kind of I kind of wish I I did it differently. I thought I was being like a hero here, or at least feeling like like somebody <laughs> somebody bad was getting what they deserve. But now it's like now you know I'm in this weird web that I didn't need to be in at all. Eight four five till I die. <laughs> Long time ago. I love the idea of Kyle being like. I'm gonna. I got my friends back. I'm gonna hook up with this chick. Like, do it for the dudes. <laughs> Take it for the yeah. dudes. Doing it, for, doing it for the dudes. Taking it for the dudes. Uh, you ever sleep with anybody's girlfriend while he was in jail, Surdy? I have not, so I can't really chime in here. Good. What I would say is, uh, man, just make sure you like this girl. Like, it's yeah, what you said, Ryan. Like, you know, if you actually do like her and you you're interested, and she seems to be genuinely interested in you, just let it you know let it happen. Uh, but just don't do it just out of spite. I think uh, Kyle put it well like it just it's not going to be good for you in the long run it's not going to make the funnier good. the funnier email would have been if it took a different turn was like i really like this girl i'm not sure if she's interested in me i found out her boyfriend is this guy whatever like i don't care about that guy i never live with him i don't really even know him he jammed me up on the thing and i actually legitimately like her i'm i don't care about her friend group right. i like her right and like how do i pursue and it would be unbelievable to not tell her but then be like I hate guys that just can't put together a plan. <laughs> <laughs> there are like, a couple whenever, little nuggets in there, though. Yeah. There are there, a couple little nuggets of like, so it sounds like, was he trying to get the girl to move in? And that fell through. And that's maybe why he texted this guy back a month later being like, hey, are you still planning yes. on moving in? And if yes. that's the case, and she's talking to you and, is, and just doesn't want to talk about him and is, you, is pump playing tennis with you. Sounds like she's open, dude. I'm just I'm just saying. Oh, man. It does sound like it. Uh, but again. You know, it just seems it's he didn't he didn't wrong you enough definitely to not. have you want to do this. <laughs> definitely not. <laughs> Fucking psycho. What is a legitimately good example of? OK, what what, what would like the, the wrong have to be for them? make this OK, you I know? just I don't told think you. That is, is there one? I don't, but you even I said just yourself, you. you didn't think it was worth it. It was a big deal, though, at the time. Now, I mean, I was like fresh out of high school at the time. It seemed like a huge deal. If he were to maybe fill out a Columbia House CD giveaway in his name and they were roommates and then, you know, he gets the 12 CDs for 99 cents plus the extra one for $1.49. But then he has to keep buying them for 12 months. I think you can sleep with somebody's girlfriend if they do that to you. <laughs> Did that hurt? Did that happen to you? <laughs> <laughs> That's life advice. Please subscribe to the podcast. Thank you to Saruti and to Kyle, who has a new line on the resume today. Unfucking believable, man. Your Wikipedia page should be two days long. <laughs> Let's, not have have one. Let's not ever you, have one. You still have so much more, more room to go. Ring or Spotify. Talk to you Friday. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now.